Well, we are looking back to our series now this morning that we have had on Sunday mornings, Penetrating Questions of Jesus. 25 or so of the most thought-provoking, profound questions that Jesus asked. And he asked them of the disciples. He asked them of his opponents. He asked them of all sorts of people. We have the privilege this morning of coming to one that's in Luke's gospel only because this parable of the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, happens to be one of Jesus' most well-known stories or parables is included only in the gospel according to Luke. So as we've been progressing through this, doing Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, now we come to this particular one, and that's why we haven't hit it earlier. It's a little difficult to frame this one, really. If you're trying to come up with the question, you look in verse 36, and what Jesus is saying is, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor? So We might be able to say which was neighbor, and uh, sometimes maybe it's a little better if we say who was neighbor. Leaves us pondering just a little bit. When we know the story, maybe we're able to catch on to this a little bit better. It's kind of interesting to hark back earlier in the story and notice that the question is actually asked earlier. It's asked not by Jesus. It's asked by the lawyer who sort of uh, provokes the parable. This is verse 29. But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so to answer that question, Jesus told a story. And when he got to the end of the story, then it's like he turned the question around and directed it to the lawyer and asked him, now which of these three was neighbor? And so that's really what's before us this morning. Kind of interesting. Once again, it's it's perhaps a little bit of a, a technicality of grammar, but we have this translated probably about as best as it can be simply because it's awkward in the original to try to bring over exactly what's here and the difference is is that we're using the verb to be we say who was neighbor but the original actually uses the word to become there is a difference between those two things And so what happens is if we were to translate it that way, using the literal of that, then Jesus is saying, which became neighbor or who became neighbor. Sounds a little awkward to us, but it actually captures the true sense of this because when you smooth that out, and then you realize that it might be a fine point, but it helps us to get right where Jesus is with this question. See, he's not asking who is your neighbor. There are a lot of answers you could give to that. He's not asking who is a neighbor. There's a lot of questions and answers you could give to that. What he's really saying by the use of this became instead of was is this simple question, who really acted the neighbor? Who really acted the neighbor? Who really performed the role of the neighbor? That's a lot of extra words, and so we just stick with it just as it is, which was neighbor or who was neighbor. But I will tell you before we plunge into today's message, and lastly by way of introduction, that this whole question points us to one about love. It's a lesson that the church desperately needs today. So that you will understand this is not just something that I'm coming up with because this is something I want to preach. No, this is hard really to preach this. So this isn't just a whim or a thought of my own, but I direct you back to verse 27 so that we can all really see that that's what this is about. So the lawyer says in answer, when Jesus says to him, well, if you want to know who is your neighbor, 
And how do you do these things? Jesus said, well, what's written in the law? And he says in verse 27, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy might. All right, that summarizes the first table of the law, right? That's Jesus' summary of the first table of the law. That's not so much what's in question because the scribe or the lawyer has asked, who is my neighbor? And the answer to that comes in the next one, and he gets it right. He has this right. And so he summarizes the second table of the law by saying, and you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. So we could talk about loving God. That's not really the emphasis here. That's the first table of the law, but that's not so much what the question turns on. The rich young ruler, that one does, because all of a sudden he realizes that he's guilty of idolatry. He really doesn't worship God only, he worships his riches. So that story sort of focuses us there. This story doesn't do that. This story focuses us on the question of who really acted the neighbor. And it's a very probing question for us. Truthfully, it's a hard question. And it really ought to bring some conviction, I think, to every single person here today. So we have lessons in love, and I want to give us three thoughts today. First of all, we ask the question, or we make the point, how not to love. The reason for this is that we're not trying to be negative. It's just that that's how it starts. Many times, did you notice this? Many times you can learn really good lessons in life by looking at mistakes or things that people do wrong or things that you do long wrong. Haven't you learned a lot of lessons that way by looking back at things you've done wrong? And so this is what Jesus does. In his story, he talks about three people. The first two are negative examples, and that's where our lesson is for right now. Before we get into just a few thoughts about that, I simply want to point out something that I think needs to set the tone for this entire message. That we're not just talking in abstractions. This is not just some people sitting down and chewing the theological rag. Sometimes people enjoy doing that, not necessarily all wrong, but this is not that. This is not just a bunch of armchair theologians sitting in a room and trying to go back and forth about a question and it just sort of stays in the room. It's not even the question of two generals, let's say, discussing a plan for battle. The reason for that is, is because no plan for battle survives first contact, right? No, this is the case of a genuine need that actually presented itself in the course of a day in the lives of three people. That to me is convicting because by God's grace, I've got a day to live today. By God's grace, you have a day to live today. What kinds of real situations are going to present themselves to me and to you today to act the neighbor? And you say, well, I'm in church, so I don't really have to worry about it. Oh, no, you should start right here because if you can't do it here, well, anyway, if you want to summarize the problem with these two individuals, I have a word up there for you because they loved hypocritically. And why do I say that? Well, 
these two, these two men represented organized religion. If you wanted to bring this down to where we live today, which is obviously where, what I want to do for me and you, they represented the church. You had a priest and a Levite, so maybe you had an elder and a deacon in a church, something like that, or maybe it's just you and me. Maybe it's just the church. They represent the church. They represent professing organized religion. They represent the Judaism of their day. They represent when somebody looked at the synagogue. Today we look at the church, and we look at the people in the church, and we look at the people that we have contact with. And how did they love? They loved hypocritically. And why did they, why do we say that they loved hypocritically? Because the profession was there, but when the practical situation in life arose, there was no practical response that backed it up. And now you're right back to this verse in your bulletin. My little children, let us love not in, uh, let us love not in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. For me, for you, as a professing Christian, do people see us, right? People see us that we go to church in the morning. People see us that we are church, claim to be Christians at work. We represent to them the church. We represent to them Christianity. Is there a whole lot of profession and very little performance in this area? And I'm afraid so often that's the, true, the truth of the matter, and it's scary, really. I got to thinking a lot about William Booth when I was thinking about this. Do you know William Booth, of course, was the founder of the Salvation Army, and you know that the ministry that the Salvation Army originally had, and that sort of carries over still in today, the the poor in the, in the slums of London when William Booth started that ministry. It might interest you to know what reaction he got from organized religion. It might also interest you to know that the reaction that he got from organized religion wasn't a whole lot different than the reaction that he got from the press. The Church of England was often hostile, as was the press, toward the Salvation Army. Some of the charges that they made about William Booth, they said William Booth and his wife were becoming insanely wealthy through a phony ministry front. Does that sound familiar? Unfortunately, sometimes that happens. They accused William Booth of nepotism. That is to say, because he appointed people in his family to different positions in leadership in the Salvation Army, they thought that he was showing undue favoritism, and that's called nepotism, so they accused him of that. Some people said that William Booth could be rigid and dictatorial, so they accused him of that. They accused or criticized him because he placed women in leadership positions when they proved dedicated and competent, so they criticized him for that. The army's motto, blood and fire, was also misrepresented by the church and the press as glorifying in the blood of sinners and in the flames of hell when the actual meaning of the expression or the motto was the blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Kind of just really sad. 
because William Booth made them look bad, because William Booth was exposing to some extent the hypocrisy and the emptiness of the profession that the church made, they criticized him, looked for things they could pick at in a way so as to detract from or undermine his message. Beloved, we don't need to do that. We shouldn't do that. We should come to church with open hearts, asking ourselves, what applies to me? Who is my neighbor? Do I act the neighbor? Second thing we need to talk about is how to love. And this gets us a little bit more into the meat of things because the priest comes, he's a negative example because he passes by on the other side, takes no interest, does nothing when he sees the wounded man. The Levite does the same thing. And then the story tells us that a man came by who was a Samaritan. The third man, I would just have to say to you, was a long shot. Why do I say that? Well, he was un an unlikely candidate to really be a neighbor, to prove himself a neighbor, to love like God loves. Why is that? Because he was a Samaritan. Do you know anything about the background of this? And know, of course, that in John chapter 4, verse 9, for example, when Jesus told the story of the woman at the well, that Jesus intentionally went through Samaria when the Jews, he was headed between Judea and Galilee, but the typical Jew would not do that. They would make an effort to avoid Samaria. So th think of three provinces within Israel, with Galilee at the top in the north, and then Samaria in the middle, and then Judea in the south, where Jerusalem was. And a typical Jew, because they didn't have any dealings, John chapter 4 and verse 9, so the woman was surprised that Jesus, sitting on the well and being wearied with his journey, would speak to this woman of Samaria. She was surprised because it says the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so the Jews would just simply cross the Jordan River if they were coming south, south of the Sea of Galilee, just cross over the Jordan River, travel down through the province known as Perea, cross the Jordan River again somewhere and come up through Jericho where this story is told, the setting of this very story. So this guy was a real long shot because here's a man who came down from Jerusalem. Obviously, he's a Jew. When the Samaritan comes by and the Jews regularly vilified the Samaritans, called them half-breeds, And didn't want anything to do with them. And to some extent, that was true. Did you remember the story of the Old Testament, how the Samaritans came to be when the captivity occurred and the children of Israel were taken to lands elsewhere by Assyria? In their place, these people were brought in and it became rival worship. They adopted some of the things of the Old Testament. They adopted the Pentateuch. They didn't accept the rest. They worshiped on a rival mountain, Mount Gerizim, as opposed to uh, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where the temple was. And there was this hostility between them. My question is, were they any less human beings? That's convicting. Two guys that represented the church took a look and said, 
and walked by on the other side. A guy comes along who would have been the last person that you would expect, and he stopped. So he's the guy who's going to teach us a little bit about this. How did he love? He loved genuinely. That's the way we ought to love. That's the goal that we should strive for every day. Now, we can say that, and everybody can say, well, yeah, that's true. We shouldn't be hypocrites. We should love genuinely. But what's that look like? And that's really what I want to talk about, because if we don't make this practical and we don't figure out some things we can take home with us, then we won't really have gleaned anything from looking at this story again, even though it's well known. If you want to make a general statement about what it is to love genuinely, in, at least in the takeaways from this story, it's to be compassionate. And I know I'm right about this. I know this is exactly what we're talking about here. You know why? Because when I come to verse 37, I mean, I don't have to read a commentary. I just have to read the Bible. Because at the end of the story, when Jesus says, which now acted the neighbor? Which of these three acted the neighbor? Even the lawyer got the point. He says in verse 37, he that showed mercy. It's the word in Greek, elios. It's the word for compassion. The person who had compassion. In the course, think about this. In the course of everyday life, the situations that we come across, the people who are around us, how do we respond to them? With compassion? It's hard. This is a hard sermon. So what does all that look like? Well, there's three things, and I'm going to say they're sequential, by which I mean you do the one, it leads to the other, and it leads to the other. And so let's take a look at these things. The first of them is, if you're going to try to flesh this out into a picture, maybe in a different sermon on a different day, I would use different words or make the thought slightly different, but here's what it's going to be today. Number one, what was it for this man to be compassionate? What was it for him to show compassion? It was, first of all, to see the unlovely to us as lovely to God. It gets quiet. Because, frankly, beloved, in today's culture and all around us, there are a lot of people who are unlovely. It's a lot of what we encounter. And I don't want anybody to misunderstand, and I'm not trying to be political with this. I'm, I support our president. I think every American should support his president. You may not agree with every one of his policies, but we should pray for our president. We should be supportive where we can. Thank God we have the freedoms to disagree and express them in a civil, a civil manner. But I do think sometimes the rhetoric on both sides gets out of control. And it doesn't help us any, really. You know, there was a guy, there was a story in the news this week of a guy that went so I'm kind of taking the other side now for a minute. There's a guy that Trump had a political rally in, what, Minneapolis, I think? There's a story of a guy that traveled two hours or whatever to get into that rally. All he wanted to do was to go there to protest. And he actually succeeded in getting 15 feet. He got in and he actually succeeded in getting 15 feet from the president. And he started to protest and... He had a man bun, if you know what that is. 
And so the president called that out. He said, who's that? Is that a man or a woman? And then went on to talk about the fact that the guy needed a haircut. Well, you know what, beloved? Those all might have been true statements, but they didn't help. They don't help. And please understand where I'm coming from. I told you already, I support our president. I'm just saying, I'm giving you an example of people all around us that are different than we are, that we don't cotton to, that think differently, dress differently, look differently. And it's convicting to think about the fact that they're really human beings in the sight of God. It's also convicting to think where we, in all of our pompous, sanctimonious attitudes would be today if the grace of God hadn't found us. So he saw somebody who was unlovely. He had every reason to reject this guy. Everybody to think, there's one of those self-righteous Jews. But he didn't. He saw the man as unlovely to him, but lovely to God, so he stopped. Second thing this is going to involve is taking the time. Yes, we're all busy. That's why I tried to portray this to you as an event that took place in the course of a day for three people. So, I have a question for you. Are you busy? Your life full of things? Well, of course. Life is just a constant series of interruptions. Did you notice? And it's really hard sometimes to respond to those interruptions properly. This man wasn't like the other two. They were headed down from Jerusalem to Jericho. They didn't have time, and they didn't like what they saw anyway. So I'm sure it was very easy to say them to say, well, you, you know, I'm, I'm busy. Well, I'm busy too. Most people in here would say they're busy. Yes, we're all busy, but only this man, it says in verse 33, if you look down at your text, says he came where he was. Certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Compassion. The scribe at the end of the story said it was the guy that showed compassion. So he took the time. He took the time for this wounded man, the, uh, the guy that, the other two just passed by. You notice that? The phrase is repeated twice, verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by. Verse 32, and likewise a Levite, when he came by the place, came and looked on him and passed by. Kind of convicting to me that how many people in society are passed by because they're not very lovely to us. You know, beloved, really, if you stop and think about it, this really needs to convict us. There are a lot of people like this in today's society. I don't think we see as many of them, but you can certainly see them here. Try going to a big city sometime. What about the homeless? What about people who live in cardboard boxes? Well, they probably don't have good hygiene. They probably don't have a lot of good sanitation. They probably smell bad. And I understand some of the problems with all of this, so don't misunderstand me. I'm just saying that these people are human beings 
should be looked upon as such, precious in the sight of God, and should be worthy of our time, some of our time. Pretty much everybody knows, I think, Joni Erickson Tata. She herself's a quadriplegic, as you know. She and her husband, Ken, were involved in the Special Olympics, the Los Angeles Special Olympics. Ken was actually coordinating for the track and field events. They had a large crowd of people watching the participants. This was going to be a 50-meter race. So the starter fired his gun off the contestants' race. Now remember, this is the Special Olympics. So they started off on the race. They rushed towards the finish line. There was one boy back there somewhere in the pack who left the track. Why he did that, I have no clue. I'm not sure anybody else had a clue. He started running towards his friends in the, that were standing in the infield. Well, you can't do that. And so Ken, Joni's husband, blew the whistle, tried to get the boy's attention. Didn't work. Then one of the other competitors, one of the other people in the race noticed. You know who it was who noticed? It was a Down syndrome girl. with Coke bottle glasses. Just try to get that picture in your mind for a moment. She hollered at her friend, stop, come back, this is the way. He heard the voice of his friend, he stopped and looked, but he still didn't respond. She yelled again, come back, this is the way. The boy stood there confused, didn't know what to do. So she left her place on the track where she was, went and linked arms with this boy, They ran back to the track together and finished the race. You know what places they came in? Last and last. But they came to the hugs of their fellow competitors and to a standing ovation from the crowd. The Down Syndrome girl with Coke bottle glasses taught everyone there that day an important lesson for life that sometimes it's really important to take time out from our own personal goals. Secondly, getting involved, or thirdly, getting involved. That getting involved led to three more things. What was it like to get involved? It was like being inconvenienced. I don't like that, do you? But this man gave up his beast of burden and put this wounded man, after he had tended to his wounds, put him on his own beast of burden, which meant he had to walk. Getting involved sometimes involves caring. Oftentimes involves caring. Do you notice how in verse 34 and 35, that's used twice. He told the innkeeper, take care of him. In verse 36, verse 34, It says, and took care of him. Twice it says that. He took care of him. Sometimes it means that we have to care. Is that so much to ask of the followers of Jesus? That we have to care about people around us? And I'll state my concern very briefly and go because time is limited, but I will really am bothered sometimes about this question just how much do independent fundamental Baptists look like that 
The answer to that is not so much. And that's why the New Evangelicals and people of other stripes have co-opted that issue from us, co-opted this message of loving your neighbor. It's sad, really, that that has happened. Probably no one here this morning has ever heard of the missionary whose story I'm going to tell you next. His name was Oswald Golter. He was a missionary in northern China during the 1940s. He was there 10 years, and then after he was ready to return home, he boarded a ship, and the ship had an intermediate stop in India. He got off the ship was looking around by the docks, saw a warehouse. It was filled with refugees that were living in it, people that were unwanted by anyone else. So he went to visit them. It was Christmas time, so he thought this would be a good question. He wished them a Merry Christmas and then asked them what they would like for Christmas. They answered this, we're not Christians. We don't believe in Christmas. Golter said, I know. But what do you want for Christmas? So they got to talking, and the first thing you know, they started talking about these pastries that they liked. You know what this guy did? Oswald Golter. Who ever heard of him? Kind of think they've heard of him in heaven. He went and cashed in his ticket. and bought tassels of these pastries and took them back to these people. Later, he was telling about this to a class that he was teaching. One of the students said, but sir, why did you do that for them? They weren't Christians. They don't believe in Jesus. Golter said, I know, but I do. How to respond is our last thought. My first word, I don't have a lot of time, but my first word may surprise you is confession. What kind of confession? Well, if you go back to the very beginning of this story, you find out why Jesus even told it, because a lawyer, verse 25, came to him, testing him, it says, and said, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. Did you know that? That's just the problem. And this man didn't see that. This man was like so many other people who felt that somehow you could earn your way to heaven. Somehow there was something you could do to merit God's favor. And so he approached Jesus on terms that don't work, but Jesus answered him on his own terms to teach a lesson. Jesus isn't teaching that if you do all these things, you'll be saved. Jesus is simply answering the man on his own terms. Why did he then go on, as it says in verse 29, but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I can answer that question real fast. Because he felt guilty and knew he didn't do it. That's exactly what the law is supposed to do. Did you know that, beloved? 
The Bible tells us this. The law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. You look in the mirror and you look in the law and you find out, I don't do those things. I'm not that kind of a person. I don't love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself. No, I'm selfish. The whole answer is predicated on the truth of that because Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. How in the world would someone tell you to love your neighbor as yourself if it weren't infused in us that we love ourselves and we love ourselves preeminently and first? We don't measure up. There's not a single person here today who measures up right from this pulpit to the very person at the back of the building and anybody listening to this sermon online or elsewhere, we don't measure up. That's why we need Jesus. I'm so glad for Jesus because I've already seen that I don't measure up. I don't measure up to that first one. I don't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to, but I don't. I don't love my neighbor as myself. I want to, but I don't. And I'm not making excuses. I just know I don't, which means I'm a sinner who needs to be saved. And I'm really glad I have Jesus. If you haven't been saved today, stop trying to work your way to heaven. You can't do that. That's what the law is meant to show us. That's what a story like this is meant to show us. You don't do that. You can't do that. You won't do that. You'll try. And some people who are not even in the church are better examples of it than some Christians. But there's nobody who does it all. Second is forgiveness. Somehow I think we need to ask God to forgive us for so much of our religion that's so hollow like tinkling brass or a loudly clanging cymbal. Thirdly is focus. We need to shift our focus from ourselves to others because I'll tell you something, you and I will never look like the Samaritan. The next thing I'm going to tell you is the hardest thing you'll ever hear. It's the hardest thing you'll ever do. You and I will never look like the Samaritan unless we get up every day and recite to ourselves Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Every day I want to get up and say exactly the opposite. Every day I want to get up and think about myself. Every day I want to get up and do for myself. Every day I want to love myself. Every day I want to put myself before other people. Even as a Christian, it's what the old, fallen, sinful human nature that each of us has is like. And as a Christian, I have to get up every day and say, I'm crucified with Christ. I have to keep saying it because the old man is there every day. It's like... He rises up out of the coffin. And people will never be attracted to our God by cold, insensitive religion. And the worst thing about it, and I don't want to be guilty of this, I just see a lot of it and it really bothers me. The worst thing about it is, is the people who are talking about this so much do it so little.
Mark was an 11-year-old orphan. He lived with his aunt because his mother died. His aunt wasn't too thrilled to have a child in the home that was not hers. She wasn't figuring on that. You know, there's a lot of things we don't figure on in life. So she constantly berated the boy, telling him how great she was, that she provided for her, him by her generosity, that if it weren't for her generosity, he'd be a vagrant, he'd be homeless. Can you imagine that kind of berating? But in spite of all of this, Mark was a pretty gentle and sweet child. So he went to school, and since he was just kind of meek and mild-mannered, as it were, his school teacher at first didn't really take much notice of him until one day. One day she noticed that Mark was staying after class. And why was Mark staying after class? Well, he wanted to help his teacher because after class she had to clean up after the day. And so it was quiet at first, no, not too much was said, but after a while they sort of developed a little bit of a relationship and a bond and a friendship. And the school years progressed, and it got a little closer to Christmas, and all of a sudden she noticed that Mark wasn't staying after class to help her at the end of the day. And she became concerned. And so she spoke to him one day and asked him what was the problem, and he explained to her that he was gone. He said, did you really miss me? And she told him, of course, that she did. And then he was kind of shame, shame, uh, bashful and said to her, well, I was making you a surprise. It's for Christmas. With that, he was really embarrassed, and so he dashed out of the room. Finally, it came to the last day before Christmas. And Mark crept quietly and slowly into the room, stayed late after class that day in the afternoon, had his hands and his hands behind his back like he had something in them. And his teacher asked him what it was, and he said, I have your present. He held out his hands. In his hands, there was a small, tiny wooden box. The teacher looked at it, and she said, it's beautiful, Mark. Is there something in it? She opened the top to look inside. He said to her, oh, you can't see it, and you can't touch it, or taste it, or feel it. But mother, meaning his mother who passed away, mother always said it makes you feel good all the time, warm on a cold night, and safe when you're all alone teacher looked into the box again she said what is it mark that will make me feel so good he said it's love and mother always said it's best when you give it away and he turned and quietly left the room How many people right here in this room around you today are your neighbors? 
And so we can talk about the homeless and we should. We can talk about the people socially unacceptable to us and we should. But how many people all around us have we really thought about who don't feel good? Who don't feel warm on cold nights because they feel alone? Or who don't feel safe? 